ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello there. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your new host of Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm excited to take the helm here on Playlist. I love podcasts. I love listening to them. I love making them. And I'm excited to guide you each week to podcast episodes from around the world, which either give us a different perspective on things or tell stories that we may not have otherwise heard. And this week, we're featuring a podcast that does both of those things. NPR's Rough Translation takes the things that we're talking about here in the US and looks at how other countries have grappled with these issues. I sat down with host Gregory Warner to talk about one of his latest episodes, We Still Don't Say That, which unpacks how race is talked about or not talked about in France. What is the thesis of Rough Translation? Where did the idea come from? I started Rough Translation in 2016. And uh, at the time, there weren't many long-form narrative podcasts. So that was something I was really interested in doing, narrative, Mm -hmm. a show. But the idea of rough translation was, from the beginning, the idea that if we're going to walk in someone's shoes, if we're going to tell a story about somebody in another place, there's going to be something that's lost in translation. There's going to be some act Mm. that we're going to have to understand, either a piece of history or some cultural context. And and understanding that will be the kind of the, the key to unlocking the story and, and actually seeing things from their perspective. I mean, the episodes I've listened to, I feel like mm-hmm. what I really enjoyed about it is I feel like there's sometimes a bit of a tendency to treat problems here in the U.S. as as if nowhere else has ever dealt with them anywhere else in the world. Right. I felt like the show does a really good job of that, of saying almost no problem is unique to one country that, you know, countries around the world grapple with similar issues and let's look at how they've dealt with it elsewhere. Yeah, that's that's precisely it. I mean, when we are taking a deep dive into somewhere else in the world, uh, we're hoping that that journey is going to teach us something about our own lives here at home. So the episode which we're going to feature today is is the, um, the episode from France, which is We Don't Say That. Um, and I think in, in multiple episodes of the podcast, you make it look really effortless. Uh, in, in terms of finding your stories and how you kind of weave them together. But with this episode in particular, could you talk me through kind of how did you build that bridge, first of all, to kind of, okay, the American conversations about race, how does that, you know, how does that work in France? And how do you find, A, I mean, the um, the reporter that did it was incredible. And then the guests that he had were were just fantastic. Their stories were amazing and they were so fun to listen to. How do you piece all that together? This came to us from Gofen, who was a freelancer at the time. And uh, he had spent a lot of time in, in France and, and thinking about this issue. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he had done some reporting and then we, we did the reporting together, uh, sort of the second half of the reporting, I guess. And, and the other part of that I think that's very important is that in this story, um, Gofen is wrestling with how he thinks about mm. these things. And uh, we're, he's talking about that out loud in a very genuine way. So it's as much him presenting the story as thinking through the story and, and discovering things that in the conversation uh, are new, that, that mm-hmm. are suddenly discovered. How much did your experience as a foreign correspondent inform the, the creation of Rough Translation? I mean, hugely, yeah. Uh, 
the um, I think anyone who's been a correspondent as or reported or or traveled in other places had the experience of of telling a story from overseas and then having to um, you know give all this background and explain you know the cultural context or the history of a mm-hmm. place. Uh, so that idea of of a rough translation is so. Um, it's so much part of my life. And, you know, oftentimes that that part gets cut out of a shorter radio story. So we wanted to make sure not mm-hmm. to cut it out of these ones. That was Gregory Warner. And now let's listen to the episode, We Still Don't Say That. So how did you run into this story? So uh, I was 19. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gofen Putubwele is a radio producer in New York. And for our last episode of 2020, we wanted to revisit a story that he did with us that I've been thinking a lot about, and we asked him to update. But first, here's the original broadcast with Gofen. I went to France with a whole group of folks from my campus college ministry. And then my brain turns on, like, oh my gosh, I speak French. I've been speaking French forever. This is fun. This was a lot of, I'm in this place, and it's cool. And like, like, I belong. I belong, yeah. I have, like, skills. My family is Congolese, and I have this kind of insecurity because I have Congolese French grown up in America. I don't have fancy French, so someone tells me the, like, right thing. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And his French friends would instruct him. Like, yeah, we don't use that. A pen was not a beak. It was un stylo. Or a towel is not a sui, it's a serviette. And the news on the TV, that is never, ever the nouvelle. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't use les nouvelles. We use les infos. Like, the informations. (laughs) So you were, like, improving your French. Right, 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 totally. Even when the proper French turned out to be not French at all. Yeah. The word in French for black is noir. We use that word in English sometimes, like film, film noir. And so I'd use the word noir to describe myself. Like, je suis noir, I'm black, or les noirs aux États-Unis, black people in the U.S. And then a friend was like, oh, actually, we don't use the word noir for people. Like, we use black, the English word black. 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 Noir is a little bit like, "Mm," but black is better, you know? Goffin did not question this lesson any more than the others. I remember coming back home and telling my parents, like, do you know that in France French, right, it was like, you say black, not noir. It's like, okay, fact I learned. I'm Gregory Warner. This is Rough Translation, the show where we take you to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. Today's episode takes place in a country where language is so treasured and so reverently protected from foreign influence that just trying to change a word can be seen as a threat. And a threat not just to tradition and the status quo, but to the French self-image, to what it means to be French. So we got two stories for you today, two creative efforts to change the words we call ourselves and each other. We're going to come back to Goffin's discovery that black was the new noir and what happened next. But first, a story that really shows the inner workings of how the French language is so closely guarded. And it starts with this other word. I found out this crazy thing that just like sent me on this whole spiral of working on the story. You know what a ghostwriter is, right? Someone who writes Writes the books for you. Exactly. Uh, The word in French for ghostwriter is France's version of the N-word. And I was like, I I literally was like, what? So we're going to start with that story when Rough Translation returns. We're back with Rough Translation. Just a warning, there is some strong language in this episode that we've left unbeeped because this story is about strong language. First thing, can I get you to introduce yourself? Okay. I'm Nelly Buffon, and uh, I was working as a journalist for several years. What does Nelly look like, by the way? She looks like a nice teacher. Maybe like our teacher. Oh, yeah, Miss Buffon. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) It's strange because as a mixed-race person, you feel that you are 50-50. But here in France, I know that for white people in front of me, I'm not black. Mm. When I refer to myself as a black person, they said, oh, come on, you're not so black. 
If you don't have your hair natural, we won't even find out that you have black blood. It's strange. Yeah. It's really, really strange. Yeah. Like a lot of journalists, Nelly has an inner novelist. I wanted to, to write books, uh, to write novel. So she writes up a manuscript and sends it off to publishers and gets a resounding no. I felt frustrated because I wanted somebody to tell me what I have to do to do it better. Nellie's looking around, and there's not a lot of these things we're used to having in the U.S., like books on writing or MFA programs. No blog, no website. No, no, no. Everybody thinks that writing cannot be learned here in France. Mm, okay. It's something like you have the gift or you don't have it. And so Nellie says, I'm going to start this consulting agency where I can help people learn how to write. Like, connect them with people who can help. Like, maybe an editor or a ghostwriter. Are there many um, Black-owned... <laughs> no, I'm always alone. I've always been alone. I'm always the only Black person. One day pretty soon after she starts this new literary consulting agency, she's at a press conference hosted by the Ministry of Culture. I remember exactly the place. We were in the temple of uh, French literature, the Centre National du Livre. Imagine a fancy salon lined with books. And uh, this woman asked me this question. Uh, Est-ce que vous proposez aussi des services de nègre? What this white woman asked Nelly was... Do you offer nigger services? That's the literal translation. And that was really shocking. And I, and I was like having my, my heart squeezing and my brain totally freezing for some seconds. And I was like, am I supposed to punch her? Nelly knows this is the word for ghostwriter. Everybody knows that word in France. But it's one thing to know that word, and it's another to hear it said to you. You are just shocked, and, and, and you are a lot of... It's like she's the only one hearing your, how painful that word is. You feel just really confused. Mm. The word negre, it can, it can mean, like, it can translate as negro, but... After talking to black and white people in France, when it's used today, it's much more like our N-word in the U.S. So how did that word come to mean ghostwriter? Negre was the word used to describe black people during slavery. Mm. Like It's funny, like France is really proud of the fact that slavery was illegal in France. But if you cross the Atlantic and landed in the New World, places like Haiti or Guadeloupe, which is where Nelly's family's from, or Louisiana, that's where France enslaved black people in its colonies. They were the nègre. So nègre came to mean ghostwriter because a nègre is the person who's doing all this work and not receiving any of the benefits of that labor. The most famous example that's kind of been carried down through history to us is with Alexandre Dumas. Alexandre Dumas, Dumas is one of France's most famous writers. <laughs> they actually made this film about Dumas and one of his ghostwriters. <laughs> You'll remember from like the French literary world, writing is a gift. It's like this. That's and right. so this this great mind is actually using ghostwriters. Dumas was mixed. His grandmother was black. So you know, a guy who wrote Three Musketeers is a black man from France, for the record. <laughs> and the ghostwriters he hired were white. Yeah, his ghostwriters were white. And so they started making fun of him. People would say he exploits them. Louis-Georges Tain founded the best-known black organization in France. People would laugh at him, calling him Le Negre. So Le Negre has the Negro, has niggers. The thing is, you like it's an ordinary word that you can use whenever the word ghostwriter comes up. But back at the Centre National du Livre, that white crowd is not going to have the same relationship with this word as Nelly does. When I came back home, I was talking with my husband about that, and uh, I decided that I have to have a prepared answer if this came again. Nelly wants people to stop using the word, but she also has a business to run and clients to get. And it was like, 
oui, je vois ce que vous voulez dire. Mm -hmm. That means yes, I see what you mean. <laughs> But we don't use this term. She decides to use the English word ghostwriter. Ghostwriter. And I'm always doing that with a big, big, big smile. And what is she trying to do in those moments? Um, she's trying to get white people to hear that word in the same way she's hearing it. She's not just correcting their words. She's saying, did you hear what you just said? Yeah. For years, Nellie keeps correcting people. And then one day she's venting about all this at a friend's place. We were in Brittany and we were drinking a lot. <laughs> the friend works for Greenpeace. And at Greenpeace they used to launch a petition for every single thing they do. <laughs> and she told me, but why don't you launch a petition about that? But what Nelly's up against, wanting to change a French word, is a big deal. Because in France, language is a matter of national identity. It's considered the foundation stone for the feeling of belonging to a community. That's not my words, that's the government's words. There's a council set up hundreds of years ago to guard the language. They're called l'Académie Française. There's 40 members known as the Immortals. They dress in these, like, embroidered boleros and meet in l'Institut de France, which looks like a cathedral. And what do they do there? So they write the French dictionary. Wow. Nelly addresses her petition to them, but the gears of the immortals turn slowly. So she also sends it to this other group. And they too protect the language, but they're more like a rapid response team. They meet not in a cathedral, but in this ordinary government building. The name of the group is a general delegation to the French language and the languages of France. Do they have an acronym or D G L F L F. Wait, D G L F L F. Can we just can we deal with this? Yeah, uh, the linguist I talked to calls them the D G L F. So that's okay. what we're gonna call them, D G L F. Their job is to identify any specialized terms, like all these English words that get created all the time, like smart home, net neutrality, freemium, downcycling, podcasting, <laughs> and help Frenchify them. Uh, le terme infox. Gilles Soufi is a linguist at the Sorbonne, and he gave me this example, infox. It is a mixture of information, which is information or news, and intoxication, which is like, in French, is like poisoning. So like poisoning news. Mm -hmm. Et ça veut dire? Fake news. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Once the DGLF says, okay, please don't say fake news anymore, say un fox, the government has to start using that word. That's now the proper French term. So Nelly goes home and she crafts this petition and argues why this word should be changed. Yeah. And part of that argument is that we are supposed to be the people who are uh, really caring about the words. We, the people who work in the craft of words, we should be careful with our words. Please care about the words when you are talking to me and care about this word especially. She sends the petition around, waits for people to sign on, and she gets... 1,500? 1,500 signatures. Uh, Not nearly enough. And one of her friends is like, you should call Louis-Georges Tain. I was contacted by a French citizen. Louis-Georges, you'll remember, he's the founder of that prominent black organization in France, the Representative Council of Black Associations. Um, and their acronym in French is C-R-A-N. The Cran? Cran. Yes. Louis-Georges remembers the day he got Nelly's call. And she told me this funny and shocking story about people coming to her office asking for uh, niggers. <laughs> so that's funny, but that's revolting at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I told her, you did what you had to do. But because you are an isolated citizen, of course, you didn't have all this success. When all of this started, Nelly just wanted people to stop saying the N-word to her. Um, she wasn't trying to be an activist or anything. At the first beginning, I was not comfortable with the idea of contacting the Grand because uh, they have an image of 
um, angry black people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to do anything with anger. She told me that she had tried before and the petition, it didn't work. And so Louis-Georges, he uses his connections to send the petition to thousands and thousands of people. Do you remember seeing the numbers ticking up, like going up? Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was at home going to my computer every uh, every 15 minutes uh -huh. and I was like, no, oh, <laughs> plus uh, thousand and plus thousand and plus thousand. It was uh, quite magical. It looks like they may actually get a meeting with the DJLF. But there's another problem. Ghostwriters. The word Nelly's been using is the English word, ghostwriter. Which is the American way. But... You can't, you can't go into the délégation générale à la langue française et aux langues de France, which is just like too many references to French in the name, and be like, hey, can we use this English word? Can we say le ghostwriter? No. Louis-Georges is like, you know what? There's actually a word in French for ghostwriter. We have a word for that. Before nègre. Which is plume. Plume is feather or pen, like a fountain pen. Prête plume is loaned feather. We want to go back to a very, very classical way, an elegant way of saying, which is nice. And it's not racist. The first time I talked to Louis-Georges on the phone, he said something like, if you're a minority and you want to see change happen, you can't be an idiot. You have to be strategic. And this is one of those moments where I see exactly what he meant. When this petition gets hate mail, it's going to be criticized for changing tradition, changing the French language. And so what they do is they're like, oh, you want to be traditional? We're going to be even more traditional, even more truly French. And the petition gets them this meeting. They go to the DGLF, take the steps up to this ordinary administrative government office, and they meet with a wizard. He's like a court clerk. Yeah, so. he's like the, he's like a clerk. I like to call him the wizard. <laughs> I found him friendly. The fact that Nelly and Louis-Georges are even sitting in this office discussing this at all is pretty extraordinary. They don't have to respond to some petition from an ordinary citizen. And they tell you, we, we will call you next week, of course, don't worry. It's going to the ministry cabinet. Next week comes, there's no phone call. It's going back to the college. You need to call them every week to say, what's happening? Are you working on the issue? It's one month. Why is it so long? Finally, Louis-Georges gets word that they're, they're going to issue the recommendation. So I'm going to read the recommendation. Dans l'ensemble des dictionnaires d'usage de la langue française actuelle, le mot « nègre » employé pour désigner une personne de couleur étant associé à l'esclavage est qualifié de dépréciatif, péjoratif, raciste, vieilli. So, in French dictionaries, the word « nègre », which is associated with slavery, employed to designate a person of color, is described as being pejorative, racist, and antiquated. Wow, pejorative, racist, and antiquated. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's the coffin right there. Mm -hmm. We, after having convened and considered, we propose this new term, prête plume. And that's the win. And they send out the alert. Nelly and Louis-Georges go on TV. Précisément parce qu'il s'agit d'un travail dévalorisé. de répondre, nous utilisons plutôt le terme prêt de plume. Ce qui ne changera pas, c'est que les maisons d'édition auront toujours besoin des prêts de plume. Vous les avez certainement lus sans le savoir. Now, when people are using this term in front of me, I just tell them that, uh, you know, you're not allowed to tell that anymore. She doesn't have to smile and choose her words carefully. She doesn't have to explain why that word is a problem. She just holds up this paper. We don't say that anymore. I don't know. I'm always thinking about um, my ancestors uh, who were slaves. And I'm always thinking that at the moment, there were people who decided we won't be slaves anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if they will be 
killed five minutes later, they decided we don't want to be slaves anymore. For me, it's so strong. I think there's nothing above. If they have been able to do that, I can, I can do something as well. You know, I'm just wondering, in this moment when Nelly is able to hold up that piece of paper, this ruling from the DGLF that says, we don't say that anymore, like that we, it feels like the idea at least is that the whole country tries to stay on the same page in terms of language. And I guess I'm wondering if we had something like that in America, would that be kind of nice? I mean, if I could pull out a piece of paper from the government every time someone asks me, hey, what tribe are you from in Africa? Like, and the paper said the word tribe is antiquated and pejorative in that context. I think I might love that. It'd be kind of a relief to not have to explain every time. Like, it seems nice to me in this situation, but I can also imagine a case where I disagree with the government's choice. Which brings us to our second story. What do you do when the powers that be have determined the words that you can and cannot be called, and you are not okay with that? My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Remember I told you about that trip that went on to France? When you were 19. When I was in college, I learned all these things. You say this, you don't say that. You don't say noir, you say black. Hmm. So that was a long time ago. And since then, I started asking, like, why don't you say noir? Like, why don't you say that? The French word. Right. And to tell that story, we have to talk about something that, like, long before me, Black Americans have loved about France. So this is James Baldwin talking on French radio about when he first moved to Paris. He got there in 1948, and he says that when he got to France was when he became an American for the first time. Back home, I was a sale negre, is what Baldwin says, a dirty nigger. This is in the era of Jim Crow. So in the U.S., he found whites-only signs and segregation. But in France, he finds it completely different. In fact, you're not even supposed to name race. And that tradition goes back to World War II. World War II is this pivotal moment in French history. Like, a lot of what France is today has happened because of World War II. So during the war, France was complicit with the Nazis. France, like, rounded up Jews, deported them to the concentration camps. Your religion, your race was recorded and used against you. So after the war, the new president, that's Charles de Gaulle, airport named after him. Yeah. Um, he has the task of rebuilding the country and kind of recreating the French identity. Hmm. And as part of that, one of the ways that he does that is they get this new constitution. And in the constitution, they pull from this old, like, French Republic principle that says that France is indivisible. And this one word is so important. It's hard to overstate how important it is. What it means is that France is one people. And the way that gets interpreted is that the government can't ask for race in official documents, not on a census, not on a college admission form. It's illegal. Yeah. The idea in France is that race is a false category. So let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. Until the early 80s when a new word shows up. Oh. There's this show that comes on 
in 1984 called Ashipe Ashope, which is the letters for hip hop, H I P H O P. And the guy who hosts this show is the first ever black host on French television. There's a lesson segment where the host teaches you, like, I'm going to show you how to break dance. He freestyles, like, put your arm this way and you turn it all around. <laughs> and then on certain episodes, they get really excited because an American celebrity makes a guest appearance on their show. Everybody be peaceful and strive on to be somebody. Yeah! De voir des, des blacks en Europe, ouais. c'est comme si uh, seeing black people in Europe, it was like we were entering into a modern era, mm. a new era. Dans un nouvel air. This is Rachel Kahn. She lives in Paris, and she's a bit of a Renaissance woman. She spent years doing ballet. She was a nationally ranked sprinter. She went to law school, studied human rights law. And now she works in the artsy world. She's a writer and an actress. Growing up in France, she was the only black kid in her class. And so she loved turning on the TV and seeing these black American celebrities. Stevie Wonder, Angela Davis, Carl Lewis. These figures, presque mythologiques, almost mythological figures who come in part from the U.S. and who really reinforce that strength. Seeing these black people on screen, it's like there are people like her. And... They have this new word, black, or black in French. And at first, Rachel loved it. So how you feel now? Quand on est une petite fille, voilà, puis c'est une manière... When you're a little girl, it's immediately a way to distinguish yourself, you know, using this English word. You just come off as hip and trendy. Tu t'es un peu branché, quoi. Est-ce que vous avez des, des souvenirs... I'm asking Rachel if there was a moment when she remembers using that word and feeling really cool. <laughs> ouais, voilà. Eh ben, totally. L'expression black is beautiful. But the expression black is beautiful. Ah, okay. Lorsqu'on a les premiers... Je sais pas You've got a boy you want to flirt with at school, your first crush, and he'd say, yeah, she's black, and you'd respond, yeah, black is beautiful. Oh. <laughs> okay, okay. D'accord. So if we don't have power, at least at that time, being black meant we were strong. And it's not just teenagers like Rachel embracing that word. Bit by bit, people start calling French black people black. Like, une black, a black woman, les blacks, uh, black people. And then in 1990, black enters the French dictionary. But as black's growing in popularity, Rachel's also growing up. And she's noticing something about this word. When Rachel was a sprinter winning her national championship, everyone on the team, except for one person, is black. As she says, they're all different shades of black. And the coach is a white guy. And the coach, he calls the darkest of the athletes. He's like, you are the most black, you are the blackest, so you run the fastest. And at this point, it just started to become grating. You know, the exoticizing aspect of it. It's almost as though you become a black object. Hmm. And you're no longer a person. And I was hearing this thing, that this word black was fused with something very fantastical, something from a fantasy world. A beautiful black woman, it, it all went together. And, and what does the word black have to do with it? Because it's an English word. She says, you know how Americans use French words in English? Like... Soirée. We want to be kind of a bit fancy or sophisticated. Rendezvous. C'est des choses très... Euh... Ouais, ouais, c'est un peu sophistiqué. Yeah, it's like sophisticated. Ouais. Voilà. Ouais. In France, when people use English words, it's either about the world of work and seeming efficient, like brainstorming, le brainstorming, or it's about seeming like cool and cosmopolitan. Au début, ça me plaisait que mon identité... At the beginning, I really liked it. I liked the fact that my identity was associated with, you know, an English word. It gave me a very cool vibe, you know, like, yeah, I'm black. Mm. <laughs> But then she realizes that the shiny coolness that comes with the word black 
is very different from what she's living as a black person in France. Like, when she was in ballet school, her teacher's always pointing out her butt, that it's not right for ballet. After studying law, she gets this very prestigious government job. And so I said to myself, it's amazing that France allows people like me, you know, the opportunity to work at a place like this. But she's realizing she doesn't fit in here either. And she's asking herself, like, is it my clothes? Maybe I need to buy the same black pencil skirt that all the other white women in the office wear. Like, maybe I need to reel in my personality and be more subdued. But after a while, she's like, Despite all of my effort, my feet hurt from these heels that I'm wearing. <laughs> you know, my hair that I was totally destroying with all of the straightening. And so I said to myself, I'm going to be truly myself. And who she is is not black, the American word. Who she is is noir. And so she comes up with a solution, which is that she starts correcting people who call her black, telling them to call her noir. Mm. And some people are fine with it. Some people are just confused. And then these other people, almost with this like militant mindset, would continue to call me black. I've actually experienced that tension Rachel is describing. Like when I asked one of my best French friends to call me noir, my friend is like progressive white guy, like anti-colonial, all the things. And he was like, no, I'm not going to call black people noir. That makes me think of my racist grandpa who used to talk that way and like, I'm not going to say that word. He thinks that word is offensive. He feels like he's being racist when he says noir. And in some ways, France has told him that. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole French system. And it's kind of one of those moments where you wish you had a piece of paper from the government being like, use this word. But no, there is not that paper. The DGLF does not apply here. This is not a specialized word, so DGLF does not even come into consideration. On top of that, there technically is a piece of paper. It's called the French Constitution, and it says that France is indivisible, which means don't talk about race. Right. So what Rachel wants to do here is, in a way, forbidden in France. We have a history of black consciousness in France, but because of the Second World War, it became taboo. Remember Louis-Georges from our first story? He's the guy who teamed up with Nelly to take down Ghost Rider. When he started this black organization, the Caen, back in 2005, he deliberately put the word noir in the name. Conseil représentatif des associations noires. We told them no. We need to have a word to call ourselves. He started out as an activist in the gay rights movement, and he takes those strategies and applies them here. So you, you cannot say it's okay to be black if you have to hide from being black and deny yourself. So in your mind, did you see using the word noir as a coming out? Oh, yes, because this is exactly what I told my friends. We need to make our coming out like gay militants do. Actually asserting we are here. Yes, mm-hmm. and we're going to use the word, whether you like it or not. But there's this reaction in media, in the papers, and it's like, does France have noir? That would be unbearable. So even though it was a big move, the camp did not change what black people are called in France. They're still black. Dire noir, c'est être raciste. Ça leur fait peur d'utiliser le mot noir. So that even more than a decade later, Rachel is one of 24 black women interviewed about this for a documentary film. This documentary is called Ouvrir la Voix, or Speak Up in English, and it's something completely unseen before in French film. Et on a énormément de mal... It's a black queer film director, Amandine Gay, talking to 24 black women about their experience in France. And while they're talking about sexuality and depression and school, they're also voicing the same concerns, frustrations about being called black instead of noir. I actually talked to people after a showing of the film and like they were really they were really excited. Oh yes, thinking like me, every woman was talking. But the audience was largely a group of people that wants to talk about race. Yeah, I was like, oh, finally. 
this wasn't going to be heard by people, largely white people, who are resistant to the word noir. Oui, exactement. Tout à fait. And it's, it's not long after that film comes out that Rachel gets a text about doing something even bigger than that. It just so happens that it's her 42nd birthday. She's working this gig in Belgium, and she is not having a good day. Je, je, je te dis vraiment, je suis malade. And I'm telling you, I was so incredibly sick that day. Okay. And so I'm there thinking I'm going to die. You know, this is my birthday. And at that moment, I receive a text. The text comes from another black actress, a more famous one, named Aisa Maiga. I received a text from Aisa Maiga. The documentary reached her, and she wants to add her voice. Come on, you know, we need to talk about our lives, what we're experiencing. We need to speak up and change something. There ends up being this WhatsApp group of 16 black women, all actresses, coming up with a plan for what they're going to do. Come on, let's write a book this book of essays about their experiences. They use the word noir in the title. Noir n'est pas un métier, noir n'est pas un Noir n'est pas mon métier, which means noir is not my job. Which is a way of saying, first off, we're noir. And second off, it is not our job to just be noir, like stereotypes, in your movies. So they're going to take this book and they're going to present it at the Cannes Film Festival. Cannes is the second biggest media event on the planet. Everyone in the film industry wants to be there. And so they're taking this moment with all the cameras on them to announce to France and to the world that we are noir. La peur est arrivée progressivement. The fear, you know, came bit by bit as we were preparing for Cannes. They do a dress rehearsal of walking down the red carpet together. Because at Cannes, you're leaving the world of publishing and you're entering the world of the image. The idea of black women walking down the red carpet together in Cannes, this is really scary to do in France. Rachel and these other actors are worried that producers are going to stop hiring them They'll think that they're troublemakers. And, you know, there was this one other big fear. I really, really didn't want them to tell us that we're being communautariste. This word, communautariste, it's kind of the flip side of that idea that France is indivisible and colorblind. Like, you're not supposed to ask about race on the census, but you're also not supposed to segregate with your own people. What does that mean? You're just supposed to blend in, and that means to blend in to white France. Mm. So here is what's really so tricky for Rachel, Aïssa, and this whole crew of women. They've decided that in order for things to change, they have to act as a group. And there you go. A little panic, a little stress. At the beginning, as we're walking down the red carpet, we're just super focused on what's happening. Uh, we're holding hands really tightly, hearts are beating. It was like the 100-meter dash, you know. I get it, it's 10, 11 seconds of your life, but so many things could have gone wrong. On the red carpet, camera shutters click. French eyes stare. 16 black women, all different shades, black and French, right arms lifted up, fists held high. So I watched the French shows that covered Cannes. The anchors are using the word noir which is a big deal, but even bigger than that is that some of them are asking, like, why did you use noir instead of black? That seems to be something really important. Tell us why. The way these TV hosts talk, the words that they choose, they have a huge impact. We watch them every night. It's super important. The host asks... Why are you using this word? 
And the women respond, this is why. And then the host is like, okay, I'll do that. They're recommending out to society, like, use this word. And did this, I mean, do we know, does this then start a conversation? Are people, are French people now using the word noir more? So there is this conversation now around noir and black because of this book and the film and the con and this whole body of activism that's been happening. Not everyone uses it. Like my cousins still use black. And you remember Nellie from the Ghost Rider story? Yeah, got the word changed. Yeah. She is wrestling with it too. I don't feel comfortable with that when I'm saying noir. And I'm trying to force myself to, to say it because uh, I, I agree with uh, the, the, the campaign uh, about that, to, to use the word uh, as it is. For Rachel, nobody's called her black since the book came out. For me, it's a victory. You know, it's a huge victory that we are able to separate these two stories. We don't have the same history as the U.S. or of England. Our story is French and black. So that was our original episode that aired in May of 2019. Since then, a lot has happened in France. After George Floyd's killing in Minnesota last summer, there were huge protests in Paris pointing at police abuses there. But there was also a backlash to that police criticism. And the government proposed a bill that would make it illegal to publish video of on-duty police officers. Then, just last month, before that bill could become law... A video surfaced that appears to show French police officers brutally assaulting a black music producer in Paris. The president of France called that video a shame on the nation. His government may now backtrack on that controversial bill that restricts the filming of police officers. And all this debate about how France sees itself and how it sees the experience of French black people... It made us want to check back in with Gauvin and Rochelle and the status of the word noir. Hello, hello, hello. Um, I'm recording and uh, I'm set. So I talked to Rachel um, and it always is a pleasure to talk to her. We spent a lot of time laughing. Um, <laughs> So noir, um, Rachel told me that it continues to increase in its usage, and maybe the the better way to say it is that black continues to decrease. Many words are coming up to try to express this I am not white in French society phenomenon, if you will. Um, so one that she mentioned was issue de la diversité, um, which means like issued from the diversity. Issued is, it's such a tactile way of describing the act of birth. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as almost like mechanical, like mm. issued from diversity, um, which is one that she mentioned that she is not a big fan of, but is definitely one that's used more and more. Another one is that people use Renoir. In French, there's a slang they do where they switch syllables around. It's the syllables noir flipped, renoir, um, which is a thing that's done in French a lot. It, it comes from slang from the banlieue. And she was saying that it almost, it, it's used even more than noir. And so there's almost this way that like, we're still like working our way up to noir. You know, Black Lives Matter, the movement, if you will, comes from the U.S., but especially in, in the summer of 2020, there were Black Lives Matter protests like in France and Italy and all these countries, which incidentally, Rachel was like, which has also kind of had this thing of like bringing back the word black because we were like using Black Lives Matter. <laughs> um, right. When they say Black Lives Matter, they don't just mean American black. They mean French black people. They're using the word black to refer to themselves, right? Yes. Yes. But it's true. It's true. Tu vois, ceux qui défendent, qui disent ouais, on dit pas euh, black, etc. Par contre, ils font hashtag 
Black Lives Matter. <laughs> there's kind of like a little irony of like, well, we do say noir, but also black. So there, she just mentioned how like it definitely has kind of given like a second wind to the word black. Donc en fait, le mot black est revenu avec le Black Lives Matter de chez vous. Ah, <laughs> so, Gofen, when we worked with you on this story, um, I should know that you were you were new to this topic as a reporter, but since then you have done other podcast episodes about kind of the European Black experience. <laughs> uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. The the Black diaspora beat is is becoming mine. So I wanted to ask you about an observation that you made, not in this episode that we just heard, but in a story you did for a different podcast called The United States of Anxiety. And it is a story I loved called The Laws of Blood and Soil about Black people struggling for citizenship in Italy. An episode also actually worked on as this one by Marianne McCune. <laughs> the, the master behind everything. The master behind everything. And uh, uh, in there, you know, talking to Italian black people and, and feeling like you're in the Harlem Renaissance, that, like you're feeling like things are happening there that feel very first generation activism, which struck me as an observation that could be just as true about Rochelle and, and Nellie and the others you introduced us to here. Yeah, uh, we in the United States have a history where um, Black people were forcibly brought here in the 1600s. And their descendants have been living on the soil for a good 400 years, right? There's a prominence of the conversation about race in a way that is not the same in Europe, let's say when it comes to like trying to change things, like we can like look back and be like, oh, yes, our forefathers in the 1900s and the 1800s. And I think a thing that is often the case in France, also in Italy, is that it's like your parents are the first ones. That's one of the things that immediately when I'm trying to translate to Americans what's happening, I'm like, no, like, so they're black, yes, but like literally their parents were the first black people who had to deal with everything. We're 400 years into that in the U.S. And in a lot of Europe, they're 50 years into it. It means that your parents immigrated, your parents came here, and they were just trying to get by. And then now you're an adult and you're trying to do more than get by. Gofen Putubwele is a producer at the New Yorker Radio Hour. That was We Still Don't Say That from NPR's Rough Translation. Thank you to host Gregory Warner and reporter Gofan Putubwale for sharing this story with us. For more information about Rough Translation, check it out at npr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast.com.